Of our New Testament reading this morning, we will be in John chapter 7. As you turn there where we left off, Jesus had just uh, engaged in some hard teaching about being his disciple, eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Many disciples left him. He turned to the twelve. You're going to leave also? Simon Peter said, to where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So in that context, we'll begin chapter 7, starting at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And our sermon text this morning is found in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. This is God's word. You can be seated. Amen. 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 Thank you, Justin. Thank you, music team. Thank you, church. Good singing. What a joy to sing with you, as every Sunday is. Um, according to uh, Jesus' own words uh, in the text that Justin just read, he is alive forevermore. He is alive forevermore. Why is that good news for us? As you know, for those of you who were with us last week on Easter Sunday, this is a continuation. This is Easter part two. Every Sunday in reality is Resurrection Sunday, obviously. Uh, we celebrate and, re- and remember and worship the risen Lord. Uh, but, of course, Easter is a very special Sunday. And um, as, as usual, uh, I didn't have enough time to get everything in I wanted to say. So uh, we're continuing. Uh, the verse that Justin just read, obviously, is a springboard text. We're going to be looking at a lot of texts this morning uh, as we finish up, hopefully, um, this message on the glorious theology of our Lord's resurrection. We're looking at uh, the theological ramifications of Christ's resurrection, how it uh, applies to us, how it affects us, how it blesses us, why it's good news for us. We began to answer that last Sunday, and uh, we want to continue that today. So let's pray and ask the Lord to, to help us today. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is alive, and we thank you for all that that means for us. Help us to see it more clearly, to, to more fully embrace it. May it be a continuous fuel for our ever-growing joy over what you've done for us 
in your son Jesus. Give us ears to hear, Father, and hearts to rejoice at the truth and ramifications of the resurrection of Jesus. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together here today be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer and our risen Lord. In the name of that risen Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, so what we said last week, real quick review uh, from last week, what we said last week on Easter Sunday, we, we started out by saying that the fact of the resurrection of Jesus is a historical matter. It actually happened. It's not myth. It's not fable. It's not a story to help us feel good. It's, it's, it's nothing like that. Okay, it was a historical event. Secondly, we said, understanding that, we said that the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus, however, is a theological matter, a theological matter. And last week, uh, we began a list of the theological implications of Christ's resurrection. We, we hit seven of them last week. We got five more to go. But let me quickly, quickly, I'll try to control myself, quickly review the first seven for those that might not have been here uh, last Sunday. Number one, we said that the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christianity. If Jesus is not alive, we can pack it up. My preaching is futile. Your faith is futile. All the truth claims of our faith are linked to the resurrection. As the Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we are totally wasting our time here. If Christ is not alive, then everything we do as a church is pretty much futile. And to make matters even worse, we are still in our sins because no payment for them has been accepted by our Creator and Judge. Number two, we said that the resurrection of Jesus is the confirmation of the identity of Jesus. The resurrection screams loud and clear that He is Son of God that he is Lord of all, Lord of the living and the dead. And we said last week, we paused right there and emphasized that if you're here today and you're a non-believer in Jesus Christ and you think you're getting out of submitting to Jesus as Lord, you're seriously and sadly mistaken because you will bow the knee to him after you're dead. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The resurrection proclaims that and you rejecting it in this life does not exempt you from acknowledging that. So please understand that. Okay? The resurrection also declares, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, he is the mediator of the new covenant. Uh, as Thomas said, when he saw Jesus and put his hands in his wounds and saw the wounds. He said, my Lord and my God, the resurrection declares what Jesus claimed when he was ministering, that he is the Son of God. He is the incarnate God. He is God in the flesh. All these biblical identities of Jesus are declared and confirmed by his resurrection. Thirdly, we said that the resurrection of Jesus results in his ex exaltation as head of the church. 
He is preeminent in all things. And not only is he head of the church, but he is also ultimately head over everything. That's why, as we've already said, everyone will ultimately bow the knee to Jesus. Number four, we said that the resurrection of Jesus brings restoration to the human condition. It brings restoration to the human condition. Christ's resurrection is the prototype for ours. We will receive a glorified body just like Jesus did. The scripture tells us that Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When Jesus returns, all believers will be like him with glorified bodies. Paul describes it beautifully like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 49 through 55. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, i.e., when Christ returns. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body that we have right now, the body that's going to die, must put on the imperishable, the glorified body that will never die. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Amen. Now, we ask the question, well, what about the believers who have died before the return of Jesus? Uh, They are currently in what is called by most theologians, I believe, the intermediate state. And I kind of fumbled that one last week because I got my my aging brain kind of mixed up thinking I was talking about someone else. So I want to clarify that. I recovered the fumble, if you remember. I caught myself, recovered the fumble. uh, But but I want to clarify that this morning by quoting uh, R.C. Sproul. Quote, the intermediate state refers to our conscience presence with Christ in heaven as disembodied souls between death and the resurrection of our bodies. Now, stop right there. Let me interrupt Dr. Sproul right there. How do we know that we have this conscious presence with Christ? If we haven't gotten our glorified bodies yet, how do we know that we have this conscience, what Sproul calls the conscience presence with Christ? Well, clearly because of what Jesus said to the thief on the cross before he died. Remember, they both started out, they were railing at Jesus, and then something happened. Something miraculous happened, i.e. new birth, new birth. One thief was saved. One thief was sovereignly saved by Christ. He didn't do anything. He wasn't baptized. He didn't join a church. He didn't go on a mission trip. God just saved him. Jesus saved him sovereignly. How do we know that? Well, Jesus said, today you will be with me. You will have a conscience presence with me in paradise. So we know when we die as believers, that's what's happened. We are with Jesus. It's conscience, conscious presence with Jesus. But we don't have our glorified bodies yet. 
And Sproul continues, the intermediate state is better than our present state, but, I love this, not as wonderful as our final state. Hallelujah. Okay? With me? Got that? Okay. Hope we've cleared that up. Number five, last week we said, the resurrection of Jesus proclaims justification for every believer. Justification for every believer. Christ's death provided or paid for our justification. It paid the debt. It paid for our forgiveness. It paid for uh, God's declaration of not guilty. Okay? It paid for Christ's perfect righteousness that we just sang about a while ago being imputed to us. It paid for our right standing before God, which we could have never earned or merited on our own. The blood of Jesus paid for that, provided that. Then, on the third day, Christ's resurrection proclaimed our justification in that it shows and proves that God accepted His Son's death as satisfaction or payment for our sins. That is a heavy-duty theological point, and I'm just reviewing that so I can't delve any more into that. We delved into it last week, so go to the website if you weren't here and listen to that again. Number six, the resurrection of Jesus brings about the elimination of the dominion of sin. In other words, Jesus' resurrection has broken the crippling power of sin over all those who repent and trust Him for salvation. We are now, as pictured by Reagan's baptism, dead to sin, buried with Christ in His crucifixion. Our sins have been nailed to the cross with Him. Dead to sin, alive in Christ, raised to new life in Jesus. This is why we immerse. We're proudly and we believe, biblically, Baptists, okay? We immerse because the baptism pictures what Jesus has done for us in His death and His resurrection. Hallelujah? Yes, okay. Uh, number seven, uh, you Presbyterians listening online, we hope one day you'll be hallelujahing with us on that. Uh, but anyway, number seven, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the annihilation of death. Because of the resurrection, death will be done away with forever. We need not fear it anymore. Okay? Now, I realize there's, you know, there's, um, I guess, some, um, some intricacies with that. You know, nobody has a death wish. Nobody wants to die. We may fear how we die. We don't want to die tragically. I, per, personally, I don't want to die long, extended, wasting away. We might fear that, but we don't fear the result of the death. Does that make sense? Okay. That's, a, that's an important clarification. We're, we're not, you know, flipping about death. Death is a real thing. Death is an enemy. Death, death is a hated enemy. The Bible says it's the last enemy, and we hate it. And it was unnatural. It was not the original plan, okay? Adam and Eve were supposed to live forever, but they blew it. They blew it, okay? We all know that story. And so death is an intruder, okay? We don't, we, we don't mindlessly, you know, just blow off death, oh, no big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. We still miss our, our dead loved ones, okay? We hate death. But as believers, we do not fear its result, okay? All right, so 
So let's continue. Let's finish up our list, Lord willing, today. We, we hope to do that. Uh, picking up at number eight. The resurrection of Jesus results in the transformation of believers' lives. The resurrection of Jesus results in the transformation of believers' lives. Just consider the apostles, okay? Exhibit one. When we read the book of Acts and then compare it to the ending of the Gospels, we see nothing less than a dramatic and lasting transformation of this small ragtag group of everyday nobody Jews. After the crucifixion, they were frightened, defeated cowards. Peter, the boldest of the bunch, denied Christ three times even before a young servant girl. John 20 verse 19 tells us that they were all hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Then suddenly, literally overnight, they became courageous preachers and martyrs. How do you explain that? Why did that happen? We all know, as much as our unbelieving friends and co-workers and family members will deny it, we all know the answer to that. They had a direct, personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. In their denial of this fact, how do non-believers explain this dramatic, radical, drastic transformation? What other explanation is there? I've yet to read a rational one. When they saw the risen Christ, the apostles discovered their immovable, unshakable, foundational reason to live and to die. 1 Peter 1.3, which we studied a couple of years ago, uh, explains it in a very straightforward manner. Let me bring that back to your attention. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us. He has caused us to be born again. You don't born again yourself. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Note, a living hope, not just hope, a living hope, a living hope, a living hope that transforms us, a hope that comes with being a new creation in Christ, whereby all the old things have passed away, all the old fears, all the old hiding out, all the old denials, they're gone now. Living hope, a hope that, that perseveres, a hope characterized by certainty and stability that survives any trial or hardship that the sin-cursed world and fallen world may dish out. Do you realize, do you realize this? The Bible never encourages us or instructs us to place our hope on what's around you in your environment for you to be at peace. Do you realize that? The Bible never instructs you to do that. So if you're placing your hope on things in your environment, temporal things just like you, I got one word for you. Stop. 
Stop. Our hope, our living hope is grounded in God and his promises. That's what the scriptures tell us, to fix our eyes on things above and not on things of this earth. It's a living hope because the giver of the hope is alive. It's a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is the reason for our resurrection to new life. It's the reason for our second birth, which results in a living hope and a transformed life of which we see in the apostles when we read their story. Without the empty tomb... Our rebirth would be a pipe dream, and our hope would be worthless. Think about it. Now, let's think about it, especially in the day that's around us today, all the things that are swirling around us, all, as uh, I think Ryan prayed, mentioned in his prayer, all the ungodly things that are going on around us. Marxists promote the teachings of Karl Marx. Muslims espouse the teachings of Mohammed. Mormons pass on the teachings of Joseph Smith. And I could go on with other groups. But each one of these guys died, and guess what? Each one of them is still dead. Listen, beloved, as Christians, we are not promoting the tenets and the teachings of a famous and wise and wonderful dead person. Please let that sink in. We are ambassadors for and disciples of a living person who is transforming us by his word and by his spirit and who is waiting for us at home. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come, Lord Jesus. It's not a death wish. Just something I'm looking forward to. I hope I live to be 100. I hope I'm up here behind this pulpit many more years. That may not be some of your wish, but I just want to keep doing what I'm doing for a long time. And, and whoever the guy is waiting to take the baton here for this pulpit, I hope he will be patient. I hope he will be patient. I love that baton. Oh, man. Uh, where was I? Because Jesus Christ has safely passed through the gates of death, we can press on in this life with joyful confidence and with a living hope. Even when everything, every, almost every single thing around us is going to hell in a handbasket, we can be joyful, victorious, happy warriors. Why? Because Jesus is alive. We promote the teachings of a living person, not a dead person. This hope transforms us just like it did those first century apostles. It stirs us to action. So as we said together in our memory verse for this month, we press on. We press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And guess what? Because of the resurrection, Jesus is always praying for us. He's always praying for our transformation. 
If, if I'd seen this earlier, if it hadn't been Saturday afternoon, this would have been a separate point. I would have had six points instead of five. But I'm going to tuck it in right here because it's connected to our transformation. Listen to Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. Don't you love that? More than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Guess what he's doing? Who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7 adds to that glorious truth in verses 23 and 20 to 25. The former priest comparing the old covenant to the new covenant. The, how the old covenant is now obsolete. It's gone, passing away. New covenant. We're in a new covenant now with Jesus, the living Christ as our mediator. The writer of Hebrews says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. See, these guys, when they died, it was over for them. When the Old Testament priests died, they couldn't keep ministering because they were dead. But he whole, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, listen to this, he is able to save to the uttermost. He doesn't just barely save us. He doesn't just barely save us by the skin of our teeth. He is able to save to the uttermost. Some translations say completely. He is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, there's his resurrection, always lives to make intercession for them. The living Christ, as your faithful high priest, is praying for you right now. He is praying that he, you will get this truth, that the Holy Spirit will get this truth into your bloodstream. And use it to continue his transformation of you into a greater likeness of Christ. Jesus, I believe, is praying for every one of us right now that we will leave this building a little bit more like Jesus than when we came in because of the sanctifying, transforming process of the precious Holy Spirit. Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. The resurrection of Jesus means we have a living high priest who is constantly praying for us. And his prayers result in us being transformed into his image from glory to glory. They result in our ever-deepening fellowship and unity. Isn't that what Jesus prayed for before he died in John 17, that we would be one? They result in us being able to stand and fight the good fight. Remember what he told Peter? I prayed for you, Peter, that when, not if, when you turn, you will strengthen your brothers. You will stand and fight with them. Beloved, oh, let it sink in. Let it get into the depths of your heart and soul where life change takes place. We have a living, ruling, praying, ever praying, always praying, ever interceding, sympathetic, who know, one who knows we are dust. Sympathetic high priest representing us before the throne of God. Before the throne of God above. We just sang about it. Can't believe Ty used that song. We don't, we don't talk, but there it was. A high priest who ever intercedes for me. I didn't know I was going to talk about that, but there it is. 
Now, is that good or what? Is that good or what? Praise the Lord. Number nine, the resurrection of Jesus promises the glorification of believers' bodies. Okay, we get the, because of the resurrection, we get the transformation of our lives. Now, right now, in this life, okay, but we also get the promise of the glorification of our bodies in the next, in the future, okay, at the return of Jesus. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 speak of this great, eagerly anticipated event. Listen to this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. We're waiting for a Savior, right? And guess what? Paul told us in 2 Timothy that everybody that's doing that and looking forward to that, you get a crown for that. How easy is that? You know, you're looking forward to Jesus coming. Uh, You get a crown for that. Hallelujah. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, who will, not maybe, not might, not who's thinking about it. No, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things, all things, living and dead, to himself. Beloved, I don't know about you, but what a comfort this is. What a comfort this is, especially when we think about uh, the loved ones that have gone before us. We're going to see them if they believe in Jesus. We're going to see them. We're going to see them again. And, and also when we think of our own dying bodies, think about it. You know, all you, you young whippersnappers in the prime of your life, you think it's, you, you got it good. Listen, your day's coming, okay? Our own dying bodies, they're wasting away. They are wasting away. They are weakening. They are winding down. The zip in our step is not as zippy. It's a little more painful to go up and down those stairs. Right, my peers, I mean, am I talking truth here? Okay, my vertical jump, you know, in the prime of my life, it was maybe 27, 28 inches. A good day, on a good day today, two inches, okay? <laughs> and then there's the painful experience of watching our loved ones being ravaged by this final enemy. That's what I was talking about a while ago, and we hate it. We hate it. Some of us have had to, have had to watch them just waste away. We hate it. We hate this last enemy that was birthed by the sin of Adam and kept alive by our own sin. The wages of sin is death. But then we remember our living hope. James Montgomery Boyce speaks beautifully of it when he writes this, In death and often before it, the body of a person is destroyed. Sometimes it is wasted by sickness. Sometimes it is crushed in the abrupt terror of an accident. Often the last sight we have of a Christian friend or family member is of a wasted body caught by the grim hands of death. Yet, for believers in Christ, in none of these grim experiences have we heard the end of the story. We know that we shall meet again in Christ's presence. We shall meet in transformed bodies, and the former sadness will fade to a small and insignificant thing in the light of the unending joy of eternity. Hallelujah. James Montgomery Voice, my favorite Presbyterian.
the unending joy of eternity. The unending joy of eternity with every other believer in Christ. The unending joy of eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Listen to 2 Peter 3. We're get, I think we get, we'll get to this verse, if not next week, in our study of 2 Peter. Two weeks from now, probably. Because I'm probably going to take 8 and 9 set to, by themselves. Because that's 2 Peter 3, 9. That's, that's a killer for a lot of people. Okay, so we're going to dive into that. So I hope you'll be here next week. But anyway, 2 Peter 3, 13. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I love what Glenn Scribner says, quote, The life beyond death, which Jesus pioneers, is not about spiritual vibes in the seventh dimension. It is about friendship and feasting. It is earthy, new earthy, physical, and filled with joy. Remember, it's going to be like Jesus. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a translucent spirit or transparent. He was flesh and blood. They touched him. He ate. And that's what it's going to be like. Amen. Number 10, moving on. The resurrection of Jesus is the proclamation of the church. The resurrection of Jesus is the proclamation of the church. Let's go back to that first that, that day of Pentecost and pick out this excerpt from Peter's sermon on that day in Acts chapter 2, verse 20, beginning at verse 20, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God, let me pause right here real quick. And I love this. i got to interject this here right here. I've said this before when we've had our Pentecost Sunday, which is coming up pretty soon, message. I love it as a preacher that when the Holy Spirit came, okay, when the Holy Spirit came and took up residence in those believers, what was the first thing that happened? The gospel was proclaimed in known languages, so evangelism, and then a sermon. A sermon, okay? Not people passing out, barking like dogs, laughing and, or whatever, falling down. No, a sermon was done. Praise the Lord. Okay, so back to the, back to the excerpt. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this wasn't some, uh, just some unlucky Jew that fell into this ungodly scenario and trap and then unfortunately got crucified. No, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the proclamation of the church, the resurrection of Jesus. Peter continues in verse 29. Let's bounce forward to verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, 
about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Even before the people of God became known as the church, King David was speaking about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. And we cannot deny what we've seen and heard. This is the proclamation of the church, beloved. May we never forget that. May we never forget that. The proclamation of the church is not, we got a great children's church. It is not, we got a great singles ministry. It is not, we got a great youth ministry. No, the proclamation of the church is Jesus is alive. And what are you going to do about that? What is your response to that? The religious authorities were We're very upset about this proclamation as we read in Acts chapter 4. Let's continue on with this history book of the church for a little bit. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. Don't you love that? Greatly, greatly annoyed. Oh, no, the Sadducees are greatly annoyed. We better shut up. They're greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I love the way Glenn Scribner speaks of this. Listen to this quote. These preachers of Christ's resurrection were powerless and unschooled. Nonetheless, they maintained their testimony under great persecution, some even to the point of death. Against all odds, the Christian movement mushroomed in size. It has become the largest, most diverse society in history, and its central proclamation has always been this Easter story. The death and resurrection of Jesus. That is our bottom line, foundational, prioritized proclamation. Everything else is secondary to that. As good as as they might be. Sunday school ministry, youth ministry, women's ministry, whatever. As good as they might be, they are secondary to the proclamation of of the resurrection of Jesus. Later in Acts, we read about Paul, a guy, listen, who was schooled. He was opposite of Peter and the fishermen. He was schooled. He was educated. This is one of the big burrs in the unbeliever's saddle. How did this Paul, how did this happen to Paul? How how do you explain him? Well, he encountered the risen Christ on the Damascus road. Anyway, he takes up the resurrection baton as we read in Acts 17, 30, verses thir- uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Pl- please hear this, dear unsaved person, if you were here today. Please hear this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere, all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, guess how? By raising him 
from the dead. So it's plain to see that Christ's resurrection was the major theme of the apostles' early preaching and teaching. He is risen was the confessional cry of the first century church. And for true churches in this day and time, that hasn't changed. For true churches, that hasn't changed. It is the heart of our confessional cry today. When we start our new members class, they can attest to this. We start off in section one, foundational beliefs. What are they? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? You get those two right, every subsidiary doctrine will fall into place. Who is Jesus? He's the crucified and risen king. That's the heart of our confessional cry today. Remember, why, why is that? Why? Well, because of what we said earlier. If Christ is not risen, everything else is useless. Doesn't matter, church polity. Church polity doesn't matter. Church government doesn't matter. Gifts of the Spirit, doesn't matter. Men and women, roles of men and women, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if Christ is not alive. Nothing else matters if Jesus is not alive. But hallelujah, he is alive. So all that other stuff matters. It matters because it's connected to him. And the living king, the living head of the church, has given us instructions about the gifts of the Spirit, about the role of men and women, about church. So it matters, but only because he's alive. Am I making any sense here? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I'm kind of rambling. I'm off the notes here, so that gets me in trouble sometimes, okay? Okay, good. All right. I love the smiling faces. God, I love my church family. Thanks for being here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, number 11. The resurrection of Jesus is the explanation of the rise of the church. It's the explanation of the rise of the church. Let's go back again to Peter's first sermon. And pick it up this time at verse 32. We're in Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, remember who's saying this. This is the guy that denied Jesus when a little girl challenged him. And now he's up in the face of the religious leaders saying, the one you crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ, and you better bow. That's amazing, isn't it? How do you explain that? Resurrection of Jesus. Well, let's continue the sermon. Now, when they heard this, continue with the response to the sermon. I love this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You know, I, I pray every Sunday that that will happen to, to, to all of us. When we hear the Word of God, we're cut to the heart. First, for salvation. Then secondly, maybe for a, a, a habitual nagging sin or, or we need to make something right with somebody. I pray that every Sunday, we, all, if not all of us, most of us, when we hear the Word of God, we get cut to the heart. 
because our hearts belong to him. And he's a loving surgeon. And he's transforming us and he's changing us. And how does he change us? By this. We don't change ourselves. What was Jesus' prayer for us? In John 17, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. He's praying that for us. And he's still praying that for us. Why? Because he's alive. (laughs) He's alive. Oh, man, where was I? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Just tell us what we need to do. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone, key phrase, key phrase, that our Presbyterian brothers leave off a lot, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Why? Because of the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. Think about it. Think about it with me now. Peter and the other other apostles preached the risen Christ. And God continued to add to the church. 3,000 here in Acts 2. 5,000 men, just men men only. So there's more than 5,000. 5,000 men in Acts 4. From a small band of fishermen and nobodies. Nobodies. That sound familiar? If it doesn't, go home today and look in the mirror, okay? People like us, people like us, insignificant in the, in, the, in the world's scheme of things, but precious and beloved in the eyes of God. From, a, from this small band of nobodies like us, the Christian church emerged over a span of 400 years as the dominant force in the Roman Empire. And over the course of 2,000 years, a major factor in all of Western civilization. That's why the Marxists want to crush Western civilization. Or well, one of the reasons. But that's another message for another day. As Scribner says, Jesus was a nobody, humanly speaking. Human, don't be offended. Don't, humanly speaking, Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. What, what, did, what did one of his apostles say when they first met? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, Jesus was a nobody, humanly speaking, followed by no hopers, and yet he is the central figure of human history. Whether you're a believer or a non-believer, you cannot deny that. He is the central figure of human history. How could this happen? When was ground zero? from which all this activity began. Undoubtedly, it was Easter Sunday. It was that first Resurrection Sunday. Before Easter morning, Christianity was pretty much an insignificant movement with no far-reaching impact, barely any impact. The handful of followers were denying their leader, hiding away, scared to death. Religious and government leaders just considered it an inconvenient pain in the neck. 
But after that first Easter, it became history's greatest and most lasting movement. Why? You know why. The resurrection of Jesus. Lastly, number 12, real quick. The resurrection of Jesus led to the alteration of corporate worship. The alteration of corporate worship. Don't skim over this one now. Don't gloss over this one. Remember, the Jews, the people of God, worshiped when? Yeah, Saturday, Sabbath. Sundown Friday until sundown on Saturday. Early Christians, predominantly who? Jews. Predominantly Jews changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. This is huge. This is huge. Non-believers never talk about this. This is huge. Why is it huge? Again, don't skim over it. Don't shrug it off. Don't overlook it. Don't just dismiss it or take it lightly. Hundreds of years of religious tradition by a major ethnic group is suddenly altered. Practically overnight. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which occurred on a Sunday. This change is hinted at, hinted at. Don't want to be dogmatic. We'll talk about it. Can't wait to talk about this one in heaven. But it, you, it's hinted at in Psalm 118. Listen, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Why? Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected, the one they rejected and crucified, now because of his resurrection has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, is that talking about just every day? Because the Lord has made every day. Yeah, maybe, maybe even probably. But could it be this is the day, the day, the day? The, the Sabbath day has changed to another day. This is the day. And the Lord has made it as a result of Jesus becoming the cornerstone. Might be a reach. Love to think about it. Can't wait to talk about it in heaven. But there's a hint there that this is referring to the Lord's day. This is the Lord's doing. This is the day the Lord has made. Whatever, we're going to rejoice and be glad, right? Right? Okay, let's wrap it up. Let's close out our two-week Easter study with some corporate pondering. Through the death and resurrection of His Son, God has provided for us, His people, a great salvation. Wouldn't you agree with that? Wouldn't you agree with that? This is a great salvation. Christ has done it all for us. In Christ alone. My hope is found. My living hope is found. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, we hear this sober warning. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here we see not just a warning about the denial of the gospel 
or the rejection of the gospel, but the, listen, the neglect of it. This is a word to believers as well as unbelievers. The Greek word means for neglect, it's translated neglect in the ESV, means to not feel concern or interest, to not care, to disregard. In other words, it's just not that big, it's just not that big a part of our life. It's not central. It's not core. It's not at the core of who we are. And again, note, the writer is not just talking about the neglect of the gospel itself, but the neglect of its greatness. Now, don't leave me now. This, is, this may be more important than the points we've talked about for us as a church family. My concern as a pastor is that many people who claim to be Christians are just, they're, they're basically underwhelmed by the gospel. They are unamazed by God's grace. They take for granted God's forgiveness, almost to the point of a salvation by death mentality. When I, when I die, I'll go to heaven. I just know that. They, they take for granted uh, God's gift of righteousness imputed to them, which was purchased by the death of Jesus and confirmed by his glorious resurrection. They're ignoring and neglecting the greatness of what God has done in the salvation provided by the work of Jesus. Other things are just greater to them. Money, popularity, cars, their favorite sports team, kids' secular activities, material stuff, etc., etc. The list goes on and on and on. They are consumed with pursuits that in the grand scheme of things are, very, are temporary and fading. They pour hours and hours into things that have no eternal value. At the same time, brevity and shallowness have become the watchwords of their so-called church life. American evangelicals, by and large, are busy, but they don't ponder deeply. Many do not know the joy of loving God with their mind. So here's my warning to us all, dear church family. The infatuation with brevity, the infatuation with surface Christianity, the infatuation with dumbing, the dumbing down of God's Word could possibly lead to a neglect of the greatness of salvation. I believe the inspired writer of Hebrews is warning us against this type of attitude. Listen, please listen. Spiritual growth and increased zeal will be realized when the church dumps her love affair with shallowness and brevity and, 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 and popular catchphrases and inch-deep faith. For example, when people say, ooh, that was a God moment. Tell me what moment is not a God moment, okay? Tell me what moment a sovereign God is not involved in. Just tell me. See, when we say, ooh, that was a God moment, that reflects inch-deep theology. We need to dump it. We need to dump that. We need to begin, and many, if not most of you already have, and I praise the Lord, and I'm so thankful to be where I am. But if 
you're not there, I urge you to begin to think deeply about the glorious things of God, beginning with our Lord's death and resurrection. Remember what our commission from our risen Lord is. Remember, make disciples, not draw crowds. Make disciples who do not neglect the greatness of their salvation. The progress may be slow, and that's why many, if not most churches, don't do it. They just want the big event things, and they want to draw the crowds. The progress may be slow and even unnoticeable to human eyes. And the church may remain small, but she will stand for something big. The glory of God revealed in the greatness of salvation in His Son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, oh man, thank you. Thank you for the risen Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your great salvation. Help us, Father, not to neglect it. Not to even think about neglecting it. Help us take great joy in loving you with our mind as we ponder deeply the marvelous things you have done for us. Oh, bless your name. And bless our time at the table now for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.